Hello, and welcome to Runkle of the Bailey. My name is Ian Runkle. I'm a Canadian criminal defense and firearms lawyer. I was asked, hey, could you do a case about Halloween? Are there any Halloween cases? And I thought, that sounds fun. So I looked up and found one. This is the case of the Queen and Monteith. Let's have a look, because it's a bit of an entertaining case. Now, I'm not actually going to cover a lot of the decision in this case, or the legal reasoning, because this is a case from 1991, and just about everything in it, in terms of how they come to the ultimate conclusion, is in fact not any good anymore. It's been replaced or supplanted by changes to legislation, uh, different case law that went in different directions. So I don't really want to mislead anyone as to the state of the law here. But this is the case of the Queen and William R. Monteith. He was charged with mischief. And so mischief refers to when you damage someone else's property, or in some cases, if you prevent them from using it in some fashion. But in this case, what they're alleging is damage. So not only do they dismiss the appeal. Now, this is an appeal from a trial court decision where Mr. Monteith represented himself and won. This is really impressive because typically when people represent themselves, usually the outcomes are not very good. But props to this guy. He's, he pulled it off. And then the Crown appealed it, and he won at the appeal, although at the appeal he got counsel. Not only did he win the appeal, though, he got an award of costs, and this is really rare. They almost never give costs in criminal, uh, criminal trials, so it's a bit of a big deal. So this case also considers the tradition of Halloween, the limited right of the police to photograph and fingerprint persons charged with hybrid offenses, and the interaction of the Criminal Code and the Identification of Criminals Act with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. This is the Nakawick Halloween incident. Now, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. My best internet searches say that's how it's pronounced. But if you live there and I'm getting it wrong, please let me know. So the incident that gave rise to this case occurred in Nakawick, a very small town on the St. John River in the woods of New Brunswick. I take judicial notice that the province takes some pride in its history and continues many traditions of its founding peoples, particularly traditions associated with the French, the English, the Irish, and the Scottish. The Nakawick Police Department has three or four members. The nearest municipalities large enough to have traffic lights are Houlton in Maine and Fredericton, both about 50 kilometers away in different directions. Thus, the incident occurred in a very small community in a rural area with ancient traditions, not in an urban area where individuals are relatively anonymous. On Halloween night, uh, 1990 at 9.10pm, the Nakawick police caught Mr. Monteith, who the police recognized as a local person, breaking one old cedar fence rail on a road. Another such rail had just been broken. A group of people were nearby. Each rail could be replaced at a retail cost of $3 with a few minutes unskilled labor. The total cost of the damage was about $6. Now, I plugged this into a uh, an inflation calculator, and this came out to a little less than $10 in today's money. So not a major amount of damage here when we start looking at it. Mr. Monteith was arrested. He identified himself to the police officer who knew him as a local person. Even so, Mr. Monteith was held in the police jail for the night. It's probably coincidental that holding him in the jail for the night means that he doesn't get to do any more Halloween activities. Can't imagine that played into the decision at all. The next morning, the police photographed and fingerprinted Mr. Monteith as if he were a person charged with an indictable offense. Then they released him from custody. 
Mr. Monteith was later charged in the nearest provincial court in Woodstock, about 40 kilometers away from Nakawick, that he did commit mischief by willfully damaging, without legal justification or excuse and without color of right, property of Paul Ruda to wit antique cedar fence rail by breaking same on the roadway, the value of which did not exceed $1,000, committing thereby an offense punishable on summary conviction contrary to and in violation of Section 430 sub 4 sub B of the Criminal Code of Canada and amendments thereto. Antique cedar fence rail. Normally when a fence is old, you just say, you know, it's a fence or maybe it's an old fence, but I kind of wonder if this isn't an, a way to make the offense sound worse than it is. Antique fences. Maybe there's a market in antique fences. I don't know. A reasonable inference that could be drawn from the facts of the incident is that the purpose of breaking a couple of old $3 pieces of wood on the road in Nakawick near a group of people was to organize a Halloween bonfire. So you can see that the appeals court here, the Queen's Bench uh, Court, has a bit of a different view. These, this, they're not describing it as antique pieces of wood that might, you know, a couple of old $3 pieces of wood. Halloween, suppress or celebrate, is our next heading. So we can see where this is going. The police and Mr. Monteith appear to see the $6 of intentional property damage on Halloween from completely different points of view. The police and probably many other citizens appear to see $6 of Halloween property damage as intentional and criminal damage of property that must be stopped before criminals use Halloween as an excuse to vandalize and terrorize the community. Accordingly, the members of that group, I think, are likely to applaud the zealous use of every heavy-handed provision of the criminal law to end criminal activity, however minor, on Halloween. So if you're thinking that Karens are a new phenomenon... It looks like they had Karens in this little tiny town in Nakawick in 1990. Because if you're thinking we need to use every heavy-handed provision of the criminal law to cut down on Halloween mischief, yeah, maybe. Anyway, so Mr. Monteith and probably many other citizens appear to think the police should lighten up about a little traditional Halloween property damage and recognize that a few laughs around a technically illegal bonfire on Halloween are a good thing. Members of that group, I think, are likely to be appalled that the police are not watching out for real criminal activity rather than trying to end the fun of Halloween. I disagree with the trial judge's remark, and this is wonderful because you can tell exactly what the trial judge is thinking. This is not someone who really uh, plays things close to their chest, but uh, the trial judge's remark that somebody had something wrong with their head. I think the apparent police view, get them as hard as the law allows, end Halloween crime, and the apparent defense view, lighten up, it was Halloween, are both reasonable points of view reflecting legitimate and opposite views of Halloween. This sort of reflects something that happens in, in criminal practice, which is, and I was told this by my torts prof uh, a long time ago, uh, as he then was, which was Russell Brown. Russell Brown is now sitting on the Supreme Court, so I think he generally knows his law. But one comment he made is that it can be a really bad thing at trial if you win too well. And what that means is you always want to win. You know, you're not going to trial because you're hoping to lose. But sometimes when you win, the trial judge just 
really likes your position and really emphasizes it and really slams the other side. And that can open the door for appellate review. That can bring the case back, you know, so that now it can be appealed to the tremendous cost to your client. So sometimes you don't want to win too well, and it seems like maybe the defense won too well at trial, which again is impressive given that we're talking about a guy who is self-representing, but I think it has something to do with the very unique facts here. So again, the trial judge thought somebody had something wrong with their head. I love it. Halloween has been a source of conflict between the authorities and members of the public for well over a thousand years. A lot of the conflicts between the authorities and members of the public about Halloween still exist. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Criminal Code have sections that may even provide a legal excuse for Halloween activities that might otherwise be criminal. The Charter supports the ideas of the rule of law, which helps the police in the preservation and enhancement of the multicultural heritage of Canadians, Section 27, which could help justify otherwise illegal conduct on Halloween. Criminal Code of Canada, which applies to 12-year-olds and to parents as accessories of younger children, outlaws extortion in Section 346 in words that could include a traditional trick-or-treat on Halloween. That section permits, as a defense, a reasonable justification or excuse. Although I have heard of a New Brunswick teacher actually telling children it was better to say Happy Halloween instead of trick-or-treat, I doubt that a traditional trick-or-treat on Halloween could correctly be called extortion. So you see in this mischief charge over $6 worth of fences or fence posts, they're raising the specter of maybe they could charge extortion. I don't think that anyone's ever actually been charged with extortion for, you know, saying trick or treat, but it kind of tells you, I think this is again, the court sort of leaking their actual views here, because as much as they're saying, we're not going to take a side, I think they kind of lean towards one side on this one. So skipping ahead, this is all from the Encyclopedia Britannica. They're quoting here. They say, Pranks and mischief were also common on Halloween in rural areas of Ireland and Great Britain. Wandering groups of celebrants blocked doors of houses with carts, carried away gates and plows, tapped on windows, threw vegetables at doors, and covered chimneys with turf so that smoke could not escape. In some places, boys and girls dressed in clothing of the opposite sex and, wearing masks, visited neighbors to play tricks. The contemporary trick-or-treat custom resembles an ancient Irish practice associated with All Hallows' Eve. During the latter decades of the 19th century, Halloween pranks and mischief became common in the U.S. and often descended to vandalism. In rural areas, fences were built across roads, wagons placed on top of barns, gates removed, outbuildings overturned, and farm animals hidden. In cities and towns, uh, spooks placed porch furniture on top of telephone poles, overturned garbage cans, opened water faucets, and soaked windows in houses and stores. In the course of the 20th century, the public became less tolerant of Halloween pranks. Halloween mischief became very costly to property owners and was of serious concern to public officials. And you can kind of see both sides here, because some of those pranks are, quite frankly, hilarious. Like, building a fence across a road is funny and almost certainly criminal in terms of the actual criminal code. But that's the state of the law. Sometimes the law does not... uh, The law and a sense of humor sometimes don't necessarily come to the same same place. 
Consequently, civic authorities and private citizens attempted to deal with this difficulty by both repressive and educational means. As early as 1908, some communities sponsored Halloween parties for the young. The police, local merchants, or civic groups organized these festivities. These efforts had only limited success. The tendency to manipulate rather than celebrate folk festivals such as Halloween is characteristic of the 20th century. It reflects the growing influence of a rational outlook on life and the loss of interest in imagination and fantasy. The secular character of contemporary culture is also reflected in public neglect of the religious significance of Halloween as well as progressive loss of its folk vitality. And this is again all quotes from the Encyclopedia Britannica, 1960 edition, volume 11, pages 106 and 107. Against that historical background, I can see reasons why Halloween should be suppressed and manipulated into oblivion, and equally, I can see reasons why it should be celebrated as a source of humor and fun in a very serious and rational age. And I'll just kind of note from my own experience, Halloween's gotten kind of boring where I am because I don't see that many kids anymore. They're not coming to the door, you know, looking. They're all going to the malls for a very safe, very, you know, contained experience. And I guess that's just a sign of the times, but it is kind of disappointing as a homeowner because Halloween's kind of fun. So, but I'm reluctant to take sides on whether Halloween should be suppressed or celebrated. Someday the Supreme Court of Canada may decide. And the Supreme Court of Canada is going, please, no, we don't want to deal with this. You know, solve your problems yourselves, people. But in the reasons that follow, I'm consciously trying to avoid taking sides in the ancient conflict between the authorities and some members of the public over Halloween. Whether the charter by Section 27 protects the right to take a couple of old fence rails worth $3 each for a Halloween bonfire in Nakawick is not an issue I have to address in this case. The real issue is whether or not the police had the right to photograph and fingerprint Mr. Monteith while he was in custody the next morning. Now, I'm going to stop here and not go into the detailed reasoning. I'll explain what happens in the court case. And what that is, is that they find that they weren't allowed to take Mr. Monteith's fingerprints because although he was charged with a hybrid offense, uh, there was no reasonable reason to believe that they should have proceeded by indictment on these matters. And that the Identification of Criminals Act, as it was then written, didn't allow for this. Now, the Identification of Criminals Act has since been updated to specifically allow for them to take fingerprints in cases of hybrid offenses. And I should explain what these mean, I suppose. Uh, So, indictable offenses are more serious, and summary conviction offenses are less serious. They're very roughly analogous to felonies or misdemeanors, but, you know, when you hear people talk about felonies, we don't have felonies. We've got indictable offenses, which are similar, but not exactly the same. Now, hybrid offenses are this unusual thing that we have here, where an offense is can be proceeded with by indictment or summarily, and that's at the Crown's whim. Now, until the Crown decides which way they want to go, it's treated as if they're proceeding by indictment or they have the power to treat it. So... I'm not sure that the reasoning in this case holds water, but it certainly has been extinguished now by the change in the legislation. That was in 2019. They specifically added that hybrid offenses allow for fingerprinting. So what they decide is in this particular case is that the accused, uh, because they... 
because they shouldn't have proceeded by indictment because it was obviously a more minor offense. They shouldn't have taken his fingerprints and that by doing so, they effectively seized uh, his property or they they engaged in a seizure from him and that accordingly they had violated his charter rights. And because they had violated his charter rights, the court found that the appropriate remedy on this was to direct that the accused be acquitted. Now, I'm not sure that's how the court would get there now. I think now what they would do is instead impose uh, what's called a stay of proceedings. And a judicial stay of proceedings isn't an acquittal per se, but it does end the it does end the prosecution. So the prosecution can't proceed. And because you enjoy the presumption of innocence, if the prosecution can't proceed, it's as good as being acquitted. You know, you've never been convicted. You don't have a criminal record. You don't get punished. You don't any of that. So that's ultimately what we're looking at here. Now, they then go on to talk about uh, the costs issue. And I'll just jump back to that here. And they note, as noted, because of $6 of property damage on Halloween, Mr. Monteith was arrested, jailed about 12 hours, photographed and fingerprinted as if he'd committed an indictable offense, and forced to travel to court to plead and to have a trial. The Crown did not attempt to prove that the police had reasonable and probable grounds to believe he might be charged with having committed an indictable offense. In my view, such evidence could have justified the fingerprinting and photographing. Such evidence was not before the trial judge. Thus, the trial judge correctly dismissed the charge because of violation of Mr. Monty's charter rights by the police. That should have been the end of this case. It surprises me that the Attorney General of New Brunswick would have thought it necessary to appeal this case to this court. And that's probably because we're talking about $6. Like, it's going to cost way more than $6 to have a QB justice sitting in court for, you know, even half a day. So... In terms of the damage here, it's costing more to run this appeal than was ever caused by the initial offense. Uh, but he did. That is his right. He filed a notice of appeal asking this court to set aside the verdict of not guilty and enter a verdict of guilty, or alternatively to set aside the verdict and order a new trial. In support of the appeal, he prepared and filed a submission that referred to a number of Supreme Court of Canada decisions, including Collins, but not Beer, a case in which the Attorney General of New Brunswick was an intervener. Now, I'll just note here, the Beer decision is one that the court refers to as relevant in this decision. So this is a little bit of judicial snark here. This is the court saying, because as a lawyer, you have an obligation to bring relevant case authority before the court. And that's not just cases that are in your favor. Sometimes you have an obligation to bring a case that hurts you to the court. And so I remember as an articling student, I was tasked with researching a particular legal issue. And I presented a bunch of cases to, you know, to one of the lawyers at the firm. And the lawyer's comment was basically, ugh, because some of the cases I found were actually quite damaging to, you know, his position. And nevertheless, because he's got an ethical obligation and because he's a very ethical lawyer, he brought those cases to the court's attention and, from what I understand, lost the case. But where the court here is saying, you would have known about this beer decision. This isn't like an omission because you actually were part of this case. Like, you were running this case. This is the court very quietly engaging in a bit of commentary as to the omission of this case. 
So the court's not happy with that, and they're indicating such in a subtle fashion. It's rare that the court will come out and, you know, actually sort of speak in very harsh language, but we can read between the lines of this kind of gentle commentary. Faced with such documents, the respondent, Mr. Monteith, who had been unable to get a lawyer for his trial, no doubt felt compelled to get a lawyer to prepare a written submission and reply and to argue the charter points. As well, Mr. Monteith was faced with the expense of more travel back and forth to Woodstock. This appeal is probably not an attempt by the Attorney General to impose any more punishment on Mr. Monteith, although that is what it must look like to him. Nor is it likely an attempt by the Attorney General to end Halloween traditions, although that is what it must look like to some. Whatever the real reason for the appeal, this is only a case about $6 worth of mischief. Mr. Monteith has already been punished by the embarrassment of arrest and about 12 hours in jail. He appeared in provincial court for plea and trial. After being found not guilty because of violation of his charter rights, he's had to hire a lawyer to argue the points of law raised in this court by counsel for the Attorney General. Whatever the real reason for this appeal, it is unfair to Mr. Monteith. By Section 826 of the Criminal Code, this court has the authority to make any order with respect to costs that it considers just and reasonable. The Supreme Court of Canada has ruled that the power to award costs under this section includes the power to award costs against the Crown and the Queen of Oulette. But note that this is only for very unusual circumstances. The language that is used is, they go on to say, in my view, this is an exceptional and rare case where it is just and reasonable that the Attorney General of New Brunswick be ordered to pay costs to the respondent, Mr. Monteith. Considering the legal work done by Mr. Burry counsel for Mr. Monteith in preparing his submission and argument and considering the level of awards of costs made in civil proceedings, I set the amount of costs to be paid at $750. So this is a case where they tried to take on Halloween and Halloween won and Mr. Monteith won. So it's a bit of an epic battle here. I like this case. It's it's a fun case, even though it's not one that we're going to learn a whole lot of sort of useful law about. But it seems to me that the court kind of, when they say, you know, lighten up, and I'm not taking a side on suppress Halloween versus lighten up, their decision ultimately really kind of heavily goes to the lighten up side. Especially when we consider that an alternative option that the court had is the court could have said, listen, the trial judge was wrong on the law. And so, you know, the law on this was wrong. We want to reverse this acquittal, but they can equally direct that it not go for a new trial based on the fact that Mr. Monteith was probably not looking at any additional punishment. Uh, 12 hours in jail was probably enough to satisfy in terms of the sentence. So I don't think that they would have necessarily, they could have found that he didn't need any additional punishment and that effectively the likely sentence was served by him having been held in custody, but that isn't the direction they went. They said, we're just, you know, we're just not only upholding the acquittal, we're also directing costs, which for the crown, it's a real slap because this happens so very rarely that it's something that the Crown really doesn't want to have. I mean, Crowns, in general, tend to be very uh, averse to having costs uh, awarded against the Attorney General, even though the Crowns are not themselves paying that cost. If, you know, if you win costs in a criminal trial, which happens, again, really rarely, 
it's not the particular crown who's arguing it who's going to pay it. That's just coming right out of government coffers. So I kind of feel like they were leaning on the side of lighten up, it's Halloween. And maybe also lighten up, it's $6. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this case as much as I did. I, I thought this was a real fun case when I looked into things. So I'm glad I could share it with you. I want to thank my $50 Patreon supporters, George and D. Moe, as well as $30 Patreon supporter, Steve Browning, and the $10 Patreon supporters who will be in the crawl immediately following. If you've enjoyed this content, please like, share, and subscribe. Uh, I've got a link to my Patreon below. I'll link this case as well. Thank you for watching. I hope this has armed you with knowledge.